right, good morning again, everybody. Well, I just want you to know as we start off, I personally feel like today is already a complete success because I wore a white shirt, I've had a cup of coffee, and I didn't spill anything so far. So I think today's on a, on a good, good start off. So we are, of course, as uh, you saw in our intro video and everything, diving into the Ten Commandments again today. And I guess the question to kind of start off as we dig into the Ten Commandments is our quote from Zig Ziglar that he said, you know, if God would have wanted us to live in today's permissiveness, he would have given us the Ten Suggestions, not the Ten Commandments. So the question is, as we start off and dig into this, is are we living God's commands like their suggestions or like their actual commands? So the commandments of God were written in stone uh, from God as ironclad rules that God gave us. And the truth is, actually, we may not have looked at it this way. They were actually a love letter, a tender love letter that God gave to us. But as we enter this new series, we realize the fact that how do most people see the Ten Commandments? Well, they're limiting, right? They tell you what you can, mostly what you what? Cannot do. And most of the world sees the Ten Commandments as boundaries, as things that God says, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. I've got to confine you within this little boundary area here and and I'm going to tell you what you can and can't do and how you live your lives and we see them in a very very negative way and our society sees them in a very negative way also but this morning instead of an expository view of the Ten Commandments which we've done in years in the past and hopefully all of you are familiar with the Ten Commandments also called what the Decalogue right God's rules for his people we want to look at it in a little bit different light, kind of a slightly different view to kind of wake us up about God's commands again. And we're going to call our at least three Sundays on this, unless God really inspires me and we go for 30 Sundays. We're going to call this our F series in God's love. Now F stands or can stand for failure, right? Which a lot of times we think of the Ten Commandments, what we think about is how often we what? Fail them right but we're going to switch that around and on our f series about god's commands we're going to call this f being god's commands are fantastic are fabulous i mean doesn't that just ring true in your heart right now that you're thinking about the ten commandments you're going oh those are fantastic this is this is so fabulous we're diving into this right i just want to know all the things i'm doing wrong that's kind of where our mindset goes isn't it but we're not looking at it that way if you want to turn with me to exodus 20 the second book in the Bible, where the Ten Commandments are found, they're also found in the book of Deuteronomy. And these, this is where in Exodus 20 is the story of where God has literally carved his love in stone. And now we've talked about the fact already that most people see God's commands like a bunch of silly rules because they don't want to uh, obey them. Silly rules handed down by a tyrant God who wants to take all the fun out of life and make us miserable. Why? Right? And the question is, why in the world would I want to obey God and his commands if that is what's going on? Now, not only does our world tend to see the Ten Commandments in that, in that light, but actually churches that are drawing away from God are having people that are not focusing on the Ten Commandments anymore. Uh, in fact, a lot of the churches are going extremely liberal, that we've seen that, where they're encouraging uh, homosexual congregations where they're uh, saying well the Ten Commandments were kind of God's thing for his people at that point in time and with that question I, I kind of pose this 
if it was just for the people of that time, the people that had been freed out of Egypt for 400 years, then why does Jesus refer to the commands in the, ten, in the New Testament so often? I think the commandments are for us as much today as they were for the people in the Exodus that God speaks to us. But we need to realize this. The Ten Commandments, the Ten Rules of God for His people are not meant to ruin our lives. They're not meant to keep you or me from having fun. That's not their intent. They're actually a tender reaching out of God to His people for protection, for providence, for goodness, that if we follow His commands, His rules, they're like markers to keep us from hitting those speed bumps or potholes in life that mess our life up, right? That's what they're really there for. Now, there's no need to read between the lines. There's no secret messages in God's commands. They're pretty plain and, and straightforward. And if we live within those parameters that God has written in stone and his love to us, God says, I will provide for you that abundant joy that the Christian life talks about. Now, anybody in here have some jewelry on today? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's just too hot, too heavy. Maybe we just uh, had to pawn it because we didn't have any money to pay the bills or whatever. But a lot of people, when they have jewelry, when you see, especially when they're young and they're love or they're you know, sisters or brothers, they have this tight relationship. When they have a ring or a necklace or something, they will engrave a message or something on that jewelry, right? And what is that engraving for? It's meant as an endearing, loving reminder that whenever they see that jewelry or they wear that jewelry, they are reminded of the extreme love and adoration of the person who gave it to them, right? That's how I want us to look in our F series about God's commands, that as God wrote his love in stone, it was meant as an endearing message to us for God to say, this is how much I love you. Every time you think of the commands, or you see the commands, or they come to mind, and you read about them, Old or New Testament, I want you to remember how much I love you. Now, we're going to see how each of these commands makes sense in our current society, and to realize that as God's carved his love in stone for us, there's promises within these rules, these commands also. So we begin in Exodus 20. You'll turn there with me. And we come to our first commandment in our F-series, and we're going to call this the fundamental rule. Okay, got that? A little different, not an expository view, but kind of a fun view of God's commands. The fundamental rule. Now, what is the fundamental thing? Well, it's typically there because it's the first thing, right? Well, there's more to it, so let's read it. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 3, the fundamental rule. Then God spoke all these words, saying... I am. Now, I am is important because when God is asked what his name is, he says, I am what? That I am. That's all you need to know. That's all there is to it. I am everything. So God repeats this in a sentence. He says, I am the Lord, capital L, your God, personal, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and here's the commands. You shall have what? No other gods, small case gods, 
before me. Now we call this the fundamental rule, not because it's just the first rule, but because it's a summation. It's a, uh, an encompassing of all 10 rules. If we get this rule right, you know what? We don't have to worry about the other nine because they all come under the umbrella of this fundamental rule. You know, if you're thinking, oh my gosh, I got all these rules right and I've already messed up, well, maybe most or all of them. If we come back, as God has forgiven us in our life as a Christian in salvation, and we just say, if I'm gonna focus on one thing, I'm gonna focus on this one fundamental rule, the rest will come, the rest will come. Listen again to these endearing words of God, and maybe you've never thought of it this way, as God speaks to his people, and again, remember who his people are this time? It's his people that is he is called by his name, by his own account, to be his own possession. They've been in 400 years of slavery, of silence from God, crying out for God to answer their prayers, to redeem them, to take them from slavery, and God answers. God pulls them out of slavery and gives them, leads them to the promised land. Now it takes a while, but there's a message in it for us. So God says to these people, I am, that's important again, right? I am the Lord, your God, who what? Brought you out of Egypt. Now there's love in that message that maybe you've never seen before. Because here the people are entrenched in 400 years of slavery, and God brings them out of that slavery into freedom. God provides for them the entire 40 years. The Bible tells us that, you know, their clothes, their sandals, their carts did not wear out for 40 years. Wouldn't that be cool if God did that with our homes today? I mean, nothing broke, nothing wore out. Our car never needed maintenance or repair, oil changes. You know, you never had to buy new clothes because they never wore out. They always fit just right. That's what God did for the people. He provided them manna. He provided them water. He led them by day and by night in his providence and love. In fact, God calls Moses before he gives Moses the commands up on top of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 verses 3 to 4 if you backtrack a little bit God calls Moses before the commands are given to remind the people of his love Exodus 19 verses 3 to 4 it says this Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying you shall say to the house of Jacob tell the sons of Israel you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Can you see some of the love in God's commands here as he's given this first command? Basically, God is saying, I want to remind you, I rescued you from slavery, from bondage. I provided for you. I have been providing for you. I will still provide for you. I will lead you. I will go before you day and night. Now, how many times when you've read that verse have you thought about that? Probably not too often, right? We kind of skim over that and say, well, let's get to the exegesis, the expository of this verse. God is saying, I want to remind you that I loved you so much, I pulled you out of slavery to the master that you were bound to in hard labor and struggle. Isn't that what Jesus did to us? 
He pulled us out of the slavery of bondage and sin, out of the condemnation and the future of hell. He redeemed us and bought us for his own. He gave us freedom. And his promise is, lo, I will be with you eh, about a week and a half. Right? I will be with you what? Always. Even to the end of the age. And we're working our way to the end of the age. It is not always so much fun, right? But we have this confidence. We have this hope that we can or approach the throne of grace of Jesus with confidence because he is with us and he is interceding for us. You see the Old Testament, New Testament parallel of God redeeming the, the, the Israelites out of Egypt and Jesus saving us from the consequence of our own sin and actions. So God is reminding Moses to remind the people that, yeah, although you're going through this journey and you've got to carry the cars, you've got to set up camp, take down camp, you've got to gather up the manna, you've got to do this, you've got to do a little walking, which is exercise, it's actually good for you, you've got to go through this, and it's going to take a while, that I am providing for you every single day and all the way. Does that make sense? God is saying, I want to remind you that because sometimes we forget right? Even in our own homes or at our own jobs, we forget how good we really have it, right? And we fall into that complaining and moaning and groaning and, oh, I wish it was better. That's exactly what Satan wants us to do, isn't it? To get our eyes off of how God is blessing us and to grumble like the Israelites. Didn't they grumble a lot? Isn't that what they're really known for? Oh, I wish I could go back to Egypt and have leeks and garlics and smelly foods and be under the bondage of slavery in the hot sun making bricks and having to gather straw. Man, I wish I could just go back to Egypt and not have freedom and have them command me what to do and when I get on the line, they're whip me. Wow, doesn't that sound fun? God is saying, I want to remind you, whether it's the Israelites or us, how good you really have it. You're all still upright. He says, I'll provide food for you. I'll provide shelter. I'll provide clothing. I'll provide a future. I'll go before you and establish your path. I'm going to lead you and guide you in love. I'm going to give you a place of purpose and ministry and a way to retain your honor by doing what is right and working. But our problem is we, like the Israelites, what? We forget that. And that's why God is saying in his first command, I led you out of Egypt. I led you out of slavery. In fact, later on, after God has the commands, we go down to Exodus 34, move over a couple chapters, and we read this in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7, as God is speaking to Moses after all this has happened. He says in verse 6, Then the Lord passed by the front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God. And remember, we know from all our studies that God repeats something that's meant for emphasis, right? So he says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities and transgression of sin, as he's talking about himself. You see, God isn't here to ruin anybody's day by these commands. Because as the Israelites, the people of God, had been redeemed and pulled out of 400 years of slavery and hard labor and bondage, 
They are led into the desert, not into the wilderness, to wander, to go to the promised land, right? God is providing. But you know where they're going? The promised land was in Canaan, right? Now, we don't think about this much. But you know what? Canaan had more pagan idols and idol worship than Egypt did. We all know about the Egyptians, right? They had Ra, they had Isis, they had all these gods we see as we study Egyptian you know, pyramids and all that. Canaan was worse. And we think, why would God lead them from Egypt, which is bad, has all these idols, to a place that has more pagan idols? Because God was going to help his people overcome if they obeyed him. To overcome evil. And God tells them as they are going from this place of bad to worse, which is actually he calls the promised land, he says, you shall have what? No other gods before me. In essence, this is what God is telling the people in love. If you will choose this day to have no other gods or idols, you can have me. If you will not embrace the other gods around you, then you can have the one true God. If you will choose not to partake of the gods of the other nations around you, you will have me, for God Jehovah will not share his glory with anyone or anything. That's what God's telling them. And so obviously, probably like the Israelites, we ask the question, because we think, well, that's a bit strong. I mean, I can't share a little bit. I can't have multiple things. We're like, why can't we have other gods like the other nations around us? Why do we only need to have one God? Well, let's start with this. Jehovah God is the only source of absolute truth. Period. The only source of absolute truth. He's the only one who holds the keys of salvation and has overcome death and hell. Number two, he is absolutely giving and totally unselfish and desires a relationship and redemption for his people. Number three, he created us with the knowledge of what makes us tick because he's the one that molded us while we were in our mother's womb with his very hands, his fingerprints were upon us. So isn't it make sense that the one who created us should know how we work the most? and the best and know what we really need he has the power to heal us and to provide for our needs he has the power to answer our prayers and to go before us to lead us to where he would have us to be now the opposite reality all these other pagan idols or gods of egypt or canaan or anywhere else around there are simply lifeless empty carvings or molten images of metal or wood or they are actually demons that destroy and take advantage of the worshipers that serve them. And God is saying his command when he says, you shall have no other gods before me. He says, don't get messed up with those things. Don't strive to be like Egypt or like Canaan with all their paganism, but instead give your loyalty and your complete attention to me. And I think God calls us to do the very same thing today. Aren't there all kinds of temptations around us where we could look and say, wow, it'd be nice to live like that person or to have this or to have that. Wow, I wish I had more of this. And God says, uh-uh. You leave all that away. I will provide for you for what you need. You give me and me alone your full 
attention. And like a marriage covenant, God has a righteous jealousy. God is saying, I don't want to give you to give your attention, your devotion, your commitment, or yourself to anybody else but me. I should be your number one in your life. Nothing should interfere between our relationship. The fundamental rule is you shall have only one God, and that is Jehovah God. Because what God is telling his people back then, and what God is telling us is, in this rule that you have only one God, God is basically saying this, I'm giving you this because I know how you tick. I know how you work. I created you, and I love you and desire you, and I desire good for you. And God says, so as I leave you out of slavery, and I leave you through these pagan nations to the promised land where I will establish you, as the Bible calls the land of milk and honey, I will lead you this 40 years through the desert. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will give you everything you need. I will sustain you. God is saying, if you turn your eyes to those other pagan idols and those, those figurines, you know where they will lead you? To death. Because none of those other pagan idols, those wood carvings, those molten images, none of them are going to lead you to where you need to go. None of them are going to provide food for you on a daily basis or water. None of them are going to care for you and heal you when you're sick. They're just going to sit on your shelf and desire your attention and everything you have. They will do nothing for you. Does that make sense? And God is saying, those other nations worship. And yes, they seem like powerhouses and you may be envious of them. But they have not seen the end of where I'm going and I promise you as your God I love you and I will provide for you I will lead you I have a plan and a purpose for you I will get you there and I'll take care of you all the way and as you're going through the desert I will be the one that leads you and isn't that what God did in the Old Testament a cloud by day a fire by night and was always with them and blessed them God provided every single step of the way in the journey and God's saying, those idols won't do that for you. Yeah, they'll look pretty on your shelf or wherever you put them. They'll take all your attention and they'll give you nothing back in return. So can you see the actual love in God's message as he wrote this first command? You shall have no other gods before me. God is saying, I am your provider. I'm your everything. I'm going to take care of you. You don't need to worry about the trip. I'm taking care of everything along the way. I've got you covered. One of my fears when I go backpacking is we haven't planned enough, right? So I tend to always take a little extra food, a little extra stuff, because I know that if I got up there in the mountains and I'm a couple miles out and I forget something, I'm going to go completely without, right? I watch some of these alone shows and some of them, they get to take 10 items to these desolate places and the contest is to see who can stay the longest completely alone have to build their own shelter find their own food all this stuff all of them go into it pretty gung-ho but some of them think you know what 
I teach survival skills. I know how to start a fire with wooden sticks and a little rope. I don't need to take any kind of fire starter. And then you see they hit reality in the show. They get up there and it's damp and the wood's wet. And they spend two or three days just trying to get a fire because reality hits and they really can't provide for themselves. That's what God's saying here in this love where you shall have no other gods before me. God is simply saying, I will provide for you and take care of you. I will lead you. I will guide you. I will cover you. I know where I'm taking you and I'm going to get you there. All you have to do is keep your focus on me and me alone. The fundamental rule, you shall have no other gods or idols before me. Number two, the focus rule. Now, the focus rule is about our relationship with God. We read this in Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. The focus rule. God continues from the first rule, and he goes on, he says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or above or on the earth, beneath or in the water, under the earth, you shall not worship them nor serve them for i the lord your god am a jealous god visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and what keep my commands so the first rule the fundamental rule is it teaches us that we have to worship the right god the second rule, the focus rule, teaches us that we have to worship the right God in the right way. And the right way to keep our God, our attention on God, now this may sound a little weird, but go with me, is on hearing and not through seeing. The right way to keep our focus on the real God is by hearing and not through seeing. The commandment is clear. All idols are forbidden. We are not to make anything for ourselves to replace that place of God, whether it's above earth or below earth or anything. A retired, once, a retired pastor once made this quote. He said, when you make a graven image, even of God, you fix God. An image of God is limited, but God is unlimited. An image of God is local, but God is universal. An image of God is temporal, but God is what? Eternal. An image of God is material, but God is spiritual. When you make an image of God, you distort God and keep him from being who he really is. We are never ever invited in the Bible to make an image even of God because God is spirit. And we know from what the Bible says, no one has ever looked fully, completely upon God and lived. So you ask yourself, what does God look like? We don't know. No one has ever seen him. So then how is God revealed? God is revealed in how he is heard, not how he is seen. We say, okay, John, that's a little weird, but why is that important? Why is it important to hear God, not to see God? Well, remember this whole story about the Ten Commandments? Here there are the people who are led out of Egypt. 
First commandment is God says, I love you so much, I'll provide you. You just keep your attention on me. They get out there. Moses, the leader, goes up on Mount Sinai to receive God's love letter written in stone. And what are the people doing down in the valley? Hey, the leader's gone. We don't know when he's coming back. Woo! You know, God and Moses are probably, uh, they're probably up there camping out. They're not coming back for a long time. So we need to take matters into our own hands. And they go to Aaron. And they say, we're going to give you our jewelry, our precious gold and jewelry, and we want you to make for us an idol, a golden calf that we can worship and celebrate with. You know what the people were actually asking for? They said, we don't want this God that we can't see, touch, or feel. We want something we can put our hands on. We want something we can see to worship, something that we can create in the image that we want it to be. That's what they're saying. And if you remember, the people created this image, this golden calf, and they partied and they rallied around it and they worshiped it and they said, this is our God. And then Moses comes down from the mountain and things don't go so well because they took their eyes off of God and put it back on what they wanted in their life. That we don't want the God that we can't see. We want something we can see and control, right? We want something we can see, touch, feel, so they created an idol in the image that they wanted it. Now, sometimes we don't create idols, but we make idols in our life, don't we? People, position, wealth, power, how we look to our neighbors, children, parents. We create these people that we put them in a place where they steal our time from God. We put them in a place where our focus is on them and not on God. We may not have a graven image, but there are times in our life we make other people and other things God, and they are the sole source of our attention, right? Well, we read in this commandment very clearly, God says, I am a jealous God, and you shall have none of them before me. There shall be nothing that comes between you and I that draws your attention away from me so that you don't spend time with me. Nothing. Nothing. You see, when we allow these idols that we create to stay in our life, we shut God out and deny his power to give us that joy in our life which he wants to give us. You ever experienced that? You put something in place where God should be and you focus on that thing or that person and you don't spend time with God and you wonder why you've lost your spiritual joy, your abundant life. Well, it's simple. We're what? We're looking at the wrong thing, right? And God says, I won't have you do that. But then in this verse, there's also a very interesting thing which sometimes people struggle with. God goes on to say in this second command, the focus command, in other words, that you'll keep your focus on me and me alone as your number one. He says, the, you will have the iniquity of the fathers on the children in the third and fourth generations. Well, doesn't that sound like God is going to punish them because of the parents' sin? Well, yeah, if you don't obey this command, your kids all the way through to the third and fourth generation are going to suffer. Doesn't that kind of sound like they're going to be punished for the parents, grandparents, great-grandparents' sin? Sounds like it, but that's not the case. The reality is God is saying, if you don't obey this second command, 
your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren will be punished by your sin. Not because of your sin, but by your sin. So how does this play out? When the parents don't obey and honor God, they don't obey this fundamental and this focus rule of God, the first two commandments of God, to have God as their only God, and have no other idols or anything placed before their time, before God, and they go and they start putting other things in there, their children aren't punished because of what they did. Their children are, punished, are wounded by what they did because what do children learn when they see the parents? They learn those same bad habits, right? They learn those same things. I remember when our kids were growing up, our boys were growing up, was one of the scariest things to me when I made mistakes and didn't lie, live life right that, oh my gosh, they're watching this. They may live this in their lives too. They may have the same struggles that I struggle with because I didn't completely adhere to God. Can you relate with that? That the children learn by example that, well, mom and dad say God is number one, but they don't live like, like it. So in my life, why should God be important? And they teach that legacy on. We need to break the chain of that sin one link at a time, don't we? And draw back to God. We are to worship God and God alone. And God's protection and blessing is in there. And his blessing and his love comes to us in this way. We don't want to wake up in our old age when we can't get around anymore and look to see our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren struggling with the exact same things that we struggled with, making the same bad choices in life that we made, because we can see ourselves and our children, can't we? And our grandchildren. And they're not wounded by our sin, they're wounded because of our sin. I mean, they're not wounded, punished for our sin, they're wounded by our sin because of our life choices. And that's why when we come to salvation, Part of our maturity is breaking those chains one at a time and going back to our children and saying, you know what, I did this for a lot of years, but it wasn't right. I know in my life I've made many mistakes in parenting, and I still do. But I also know that where I came from and the family that I, that I grew up and the family that I have is radically different because I had to cut certain things off and make certain choices. The blessing of what I'm now seeing in my children and my grandchildren is inadvertently, they have learned that there are certain things you have to just completely cut off to glorify God. And they're doing it better than I did. That's the blessing of following God's commands. I know how to do it the negative way. <laughs> I've got that part down, right? But it's such a blessing to see that through that struggle of life over some 58 years, that when I chose to break some of those chains, my kids learned that without me ever teaching them that. And you and I are in the same place. And even though you don't have children, you may have those that look up to you and watch you and how you live your faith. And it's the same story. Sin is never done in isolation, is it? never done in secrecy it always touches the lives of others one way or another as time unveils that's where we need to break those sins
So we need to ask ourselves, am I allowing anything or anyone to replace my time before God? Am I allowing anyone or anything to steal me of that time of joy of God, of drawing near to him and being changed by him? And if I am, what do I need to do and change to stop that? Because God doesn't want us to carry on that legacy with our children to teach them to make the same mistakes that we struggle with. God wants to use us to teach them how to be bond breakers, overcomers, as the Bible says, that they may have the blessing and not the curse of how we have lived our lives. Do you see God's love in that? God is saying, I don't want to just take care of you and your generation. I want to take care of the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. And the chain goes on as each generation comes, right? Some modern pop culture theory is people are living their lives. And I've heard people literally say things like, I have worked all my life. I have a little money and inheritance and that. And I'm going to spend it all. I'm not giving my kids anything because they didn't earn it and they don't deserve it. I've also heard people say, you know what? I'm going to do what I want to do now. Forget climate change. Forget the political thing. I'm going to live to my fullest. And what my kids do, well, that's up to them. That's really causing a curse on them, isn't it? You're really punishing them in the long run. And God's saying, I want to protect you from that. So I want to be your only God. And I want you to focus solely on me and take all those things out of your life that distract you from me. So that one, you can have that abundant life and that joy. But two, the blessing of your sold out commitment to God is taught without words to your children so they innately know how to serve God completely without ever you sitting down and saying, okay kids, we're going to have a lesson tonight around the dinner table on how to serve God. Teach them by how you live. You see God's love in that? Isn't that, that's not binding. That's blessing for generations. And number three, here's where we end today. Number three in our F series, we're going to call the frivolous rule. So we've had the fundamental rule, the focus rule, and now the frivolous rule. And that's this, Exodus 20, verse 7. It says, you shall not take the name of your Lord, of the Lord your God, in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Now, you and I both live in a real world, right? And I imagine... The Israelites in the Exodus also lived in the real world. I don't think they were so perfect and protected that they didn't hear some of this. Don't you see in TVs and at work and movies and everywhere that people take the Lord's name in vain all the time? Jesus is not a reverent honor name. It's used as a curse word, right? And they take the holy name of God and they add a damn behind it, right? Well, as a new Christian after being born again, I always thought, well, that's wrong. When you take God's name in those ways, that's absolutely wrong. And well, it is. But that's not the fullness of the verse. The closest thing we have is a parallel to this verse that we can understand in this third commandment is found in the courtroom. You know, the old Perry Mason videos, right, Kenno? You're in the courtroom, you're called up to testify, 
And what do they do? They bring out a holy Bible. They say, I want you to place your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand and repeat after me. Your hands on the Bible declaring that in God's name, you will what? Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. What a lie, right? That's why we have Perry Mason and all these videos, these movies, because people don't. They put their hand on there and they say, I will, in God's name, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And in this third command that God says, you shall not take my name in vain, it's not just swearing in God's name. God is saying basically this. Don't use me and my name as a backup, as a collateral in an oath to try and persuade somebody else in your lying scheme that you want them to believe what you say when you really have no intention of doing it. That's taking God's name in vain. God says, I love you enough to not let you trivialize who I am. Why? Because when you trivialize me, you trivialize you because you are made in my image. Does that make sense? Can you connect the dots? God says, don't use me as your backup to persuade people when you really, in your heart of hearts and your intentions, don't mean it. And we fall into this, right? Well, I'm telling you the truth, what? So help me God. As God's my witness, I'm telling you the truth. And usually in those moments, we are what? We are trying to convince someone to believe us. Well, the problem with that is there's obviously something there that's caused some unbelief, right? And sometimes we're true. But a lot of times we're just trying to get someone to believe what we're saying, right? For some way to gain purpose for us. God is saying, don't become frivolous with my name in any way. Again, don't use me as your backup when you have no intention of keeping your word. You see, here's the reality. The Bible tells us clearly that one day, and that day is coming, one day, every knee, whether you got one or two, every knee will what? Will bow. And every tongue, whether you got a full tongue or you kind of split it in some kind of surgery or something or pierced it, every tongue will what? Confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You see, we need to keep the name and honor of God's name in a place of honor and not used for trivial conversations. We need to make sure that we are not minimizing the name of God for our everyday ordinary use because God is not ordinary, God is holy. And Christians and non-Christians alike will bend the knee before God one day because of his holiness. And that's what it is to take the name of the Lord in vain is when we bring God down to this common level for our use, for our benefit, instead of keeping it holy. Does that make sense? That's what it is. Well, there you are. First three commandments. How you doing? Sweating. Sweating, yeah. <laughs> Spiritually or physically, we're sweating today, aren't we? Yeah. So I hope you see one thing when we start off in this series. These commands that are written in stone 
are not to keep you from life, from enjoyment, or to hinder you in any way. They're actually to provide for you and to protect you and to bless you, not only for your life, but for generations to come. They're actually meant to encourage you and to keep you from harm, to keep your mind and eyes focused where they need to be and not stray. We know that Jesus in the New Testament makes the commandments important also because numerous times people would come to him for good or bad. And you know what Jesus would ask them? What are the commands of God? What is the greatest commandment? Jesus saw these just as important. Even though they're Old Testament, Jesus would go on to not only fulfill them, but to enrich them even more, wouldn't he? But Jesus would often say, you come to me for something? Do you know them? And are you keeping them? So here's our question. Three commands. Are you keeping them? Are you living them as the ten suggestions? Or as the ten commands? Do you understand they're not meant to harm you or hurt you? But they're meant to love you and bless you and provide for you. What's the ask this week? As we come back next week for more commands. Ask yourself how you're living the commands. And if you're not, the second question is simple. What? What do I need to do to what? Change. And the third step is very, very simple. Once you know what that is, as Nike makes this great theological statement, do it. Do it. May God bless you this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you, and Lord, we thank you that you change our mindset from these commands that you gave us, not to being something so negative or, or devastating or limiting, but actually they bring us freedom. They bring us joy. They protect us. They provide for us. They show us your love. Lord, help us to abide by them as you have meant them to be abided by, that they wouldn't be something that are thorns in our flesh or difficult in our life, but they would be something that draws closer to you. Lord, help us to love you and you alone, to have nothing or anyone else before you, and to not take your name in vain, to trivialize your name when it is so holy. We pray that in this you would be glorified and blessed. We pray that we would be salt and light to the world in this, and we ask this all in the mighty, glorious, holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.